Friends, before I read our text today, I'm excited for today. Um, many of you will remember when Pastor Josh, our pastor of preaching and vision, um, back this summer had a sabbatical. Uh, we had some friends come into town and preach, and one of those friends is back today. Uh, Jared Cowger has been a friend of Josh and then of the Knights in general for many, many, many years, and Jared is a friend of Flourishing Grace, and uh, he came to town to visit the Knights, and he said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm happy to preach if you want. And he said, absolutely. We love it when Jared is preaching. And so um, I'm excited for him to come up and share the word with us. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. Um, if you uh, don't have a Bible, if you don't have an app or anything like that, there is a Bible in front of you, um, in, uh, in the rack in front of you. We'll be on page 947 in that Bible. If you don't have a Bible at home, by the way, that Bible is yours. Uh, we'd love for you to write your name in it. We'd love for those to walk out the door. That is our gift to you. We've got a ton of them. So please, if you've been wondering, man, I don't have a Bible or I don't have this version, you are welcome to it. Please take it as our gift to you. Because we believe that this is God's word and, and we submit in reverence to God's word, would you please stand with me as we read from Hebrews chapter 10 verses 23 through 25? It says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Hey, Flourishing Grace, it is great to be here. Again, my name is Jared, and uh, I feel like I'm moving a little slower today because I tried to keep up with Josh skiing yesterday, and that never goes well for me. So I'm a little stiff, a little sore, but we're going to get through this. Um, I, I bring you greetings from Rhode Island. That's where I'm a pastor. And when, you, when I read the New Testament, I sense that there is like a sweet relationship between the churches at first where they would like share reports and they would celebrate together. Like when things were going wrong, they'd grieve together. And I have something I want to celebrate with you. There's a family that moved from Utah to Rhode Island um, this past year, and they became a part of the Bridgepoint community. And I got to baptize the woman in that family in August. And, uh, and so your ministry has continued in that family in Rhode Island. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's great, isn't it? We're doing something together. Um, so uh, as we begin today, um, we're still in this New Year's season. Um, this is the time when people kind of take inventory of their lives. They make adjustments. They declare resolutions, like all uh, in the spirit of wanting to become better, right? Uh, maybe for you, it has something to do with your physical health, financial goals, your uh, you know, professional success. Like all of those things are, are great and wonderful. Uh, but I think it's important for us to keep in mind something that Jesus said. He said, it is possible to gain the whole world and lose your soul, right? And so in this season of evaluation, in this season of like having vision for who you want to become, um, I want to call you back to consider what's most important, how you can grow uh, to become better disciples of Jesus. And uh, th this whole idea is why Flourishing Grace has started the year with a focus on the pursuit of Jesus and, and your shared pursuits of the things that draw you closer to Jesus. So I I'm stepping out of that series. I wasn't prepared to speak into it, but what we're talking about today has much to do with that. I want to talk about a rhythm to our lives that helps us become the disciples we want to be. Uh, we need help with that, right? Um, it, it is a struggle. It is costly. Sometimes it is 
uh, the opposite of what we want to do to follow Jesus. And so the, we, we need different rhythms and practices to keep us coming back to Jesus. And so today I actually want to spend a, a whole sermon talking about what you are doing right now, gathering to worship Jesus together. Uh, this is so important to us. I know that some of you grew up in some faith tradition that where, where this felt a little bit more like obligation than delight. Uh, maybe even for you right now, it feels like just another thing that you add to a, the chaos of your life. Uh, my hope is to elevate it in your mind, to even elevate it as a priority in your life. So wherever you are starting, if you're brand new here, and maybe this is your first Sunday and you're trying to figure out, like, does this have a place in my life? Maybe for you, you're already as committed as can possibly be. Maybe for some of you, you're someplace in between where you know that it's important, but when you look at the pattern of your life, it doesn't show up as often as maybe you think it should. Uh, wherever you are at in this, my hope is to elevate it, to help, it, help you to see just how valuable this is for followers of Jesus. So the way that we're going to go about it, I want to show you how this evolved over time. Like I want to show you kind of the history of Christian worship. Uh, and then I want to walk through the different components that are uh, often included in your worship gathering to just show you how it relates to being a disciple of Jesus. And then finally, I want to give you really practical um, uh, steps, really, really practical ways to make it a priority in your life. All right, but before we do all that, I want to pause for a minute. Uh, one of the practices at Bridgepoint, the church that I lead, is that we pause before we open the word. Um, I often say that your readiness to listen is as important as my readiness to speak. Like we've got to meet together, right? And so I want to give you a moment to pause and just ask God privately between the two of you to help you hear his voice today. All right, so you go ahead and do that, then I'll pray and we'll keep going. Father God, I thank you for this church. Uh, we are different parts of the same family, and so we come together as brothers and sisters, um, made one by Jesus. I pray your Holy Spirit speaks to us now. I humbly ask you to add your wisdom and power to my words, for they would be ordinary and ineffective apart from you. Holy God, we pray that you gain glory for yourself today. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's where I want to start. Um, as you look back over the history of God's relationship with humanity, there, there is this pattern that you see. And the truth is that a rhythm of worship has always characterized God's people. Um, so long before Jesus came to earth in human form, God had a unique relationship with the people of Israel. Uh, he, he chose them from amongst all the peoples of the world. He said, you are going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. In a world where each people group had their own like theology, their own set of gods, he said, I, I am with you and you are with me. And through our relationship, the whole world will come to the conclusion that I am the one true God. That was his plan. So the, the story really starts to pick up steam when, whenever God's people, the Israelites, are living as slaves in Egypt. They are, they are an oppressed minority. They have no freedom of their own. They're mistreated. And they cry out, and the cry of their heart, their grief, is that they do not have the freedom to worship their God when and how they want. God hears their cry. 
And he works in miraculous ways to rescue them from this land of slavery. He, he pulls them out. He provides a way. And as God is establishing a relationship with them, he defines a rhythm of worship. He, he establishes this covenant that includes what we call the Ten Commandments. And in those commandments, along with don't have any other gods before me, don't murder, don't steal, he says this about the rhythm of worship he desires for his people. This is Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 8. He tells them, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So it sounds at first like God is giving them instructions about a day of rest. But when you understand what's behind this, he was really establishing a rhythm of worship. What he's saying is you have lived as slaves before when you had no control over your schedule, when you worked compulsively. Don't go back to that. He says, instead, mark out one out of every seven days, the seventh day, as a day to stop work. And by stopping work, you can look around at the life I've given you. You can see the good I've done for you. You can see the good I've given you. And when you notice that, you will praise me for it. So this rhythm of rest was really a rhythm of worship where they, they would week after week lift their eyes from the mundane, lift their eyes from the chaos and the busyness and the demand of life to see the God above it all. And so there were times in Israel's history where they would forsake this, whether it was because they were living as people in exile or whether it was because they were simply being disobedient, they abandoned this rhythm and God would repeatedly confront that and call them back into it because he knew how much it mattered for them and he also knew what it meant to him. So, so if you keep following the story, by the time you get to, to the life of Jesus here on earth, that rhythm of worship had evolved. Um, the temple had become decentralized, so they had, instead of one temple in Jerusalem, they had synagogues in every town. And on the Sabbath day, people would gather at the synagogue in services that included prayer and singing and teaching and giving their gifts. Sounds a little familiar. And, and as Jesus is going about his life, he always honored this rhythm of worship. He, he grew up in the town of Nazareth, and he, he had what we would call like a home church. But when he traveled around to do ministry, teaching and healing and proclaiming the kingdom, wherever he was, he would go to the synagogue on Sabbath to worship God. Sometimes it was to teach. Other times it was simply to participate. Sometimes it was to heal and to like ruffle some feathers, right? But he was always there. And if anyone ever had a reason to say, I can have a relationship with God and I don't need the church, it would be Jesus, right? Because he's God. Like even on earth, he was living in perfect fellowship in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet there was something about the value of the worship gathering, the value of this rhythm of worship that Jesus participated in. And, and with Jesus' life, the rhythm of worship made a significant shift. So here's how it goes. Jesus was arrested, tried, and crucified. Then on the third day, he was raised from the grave. And on that first resurrection day, the first day of the week, his disciples were huddled in this upstairs room in the city of Jerusalem. They thought all was lost because of the death of Jesus. And as they were there grieving and trying to figure out what was next, the risen Jesus appeared to them. 
And they talked with him. And they worshipped him. Jesus went away. And a week later, they find themselves in the same place, same upper room, gathering, trying to make sense of everything. And Jesus appeared again to them on that Sunday morning. And from that day on, Sunday morning, the first day of the week, became the morning, the day of Christian worship. It shifted from, from the Jewish day of rest to the Christian day of resurrection. People would gather. So as the message of Jesus started to spread, people believed and were baptized into Jesus. They were welcomed into the spiritual family, and they would participate in this first day of the week worship. Now, we don't know a ton about what the first Christians would do, but we have some some clues. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read of the things, their pursuits, the things they devoted themselves to. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Additionally, in other parts of the New Testament, we hear Christians being instructed to sing to one another for the sake of their encouragement and comfort. Uh, We know that they took a collection every time they were together on the first day of the week. And so you start to piece together what they would do. And just like the Jews at different parts of their history, there were times where these first Christians started to waver in their commitment to this rhythm in their life. Sometimes it was because of persecution and suffering. Uh, Sometimes it was just because of discouragement or doubt or disbelief. There was this time many centuries after Jesus uh, died, rose rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, where, where there was like this consistent movement away from this worship gathering. And the writer of Hebrews calls the Christians back to this commitment. He says this in chapter 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's this wake-up call. He's going, hey, Christians, you've got to take responsibility for each other's faith. You must encourage one another to persevere, to endure in faith. And that requires you to not give up being together, not give up meeting together for worship, because when you do, you spur one another on. And the closer we get to the day, and he's referring to the day of Jesus' return, the closer you get to that great and glorious day, the more you will need it. He's calling them back to be people of worship together. See, this has always been a part of the rhythm of those who belong to Jesus, that they would gather on the first day of the week in honor of their risen king. And I think it's amazing that every time we gather here in Utah, in Rhode Island, across the world, we are participating in a global, historic rhythm that has defined God's people for hundreds and even thousands of years. You are a part of that right now. What's humbling to me is that for many Christians, this simple act that I think we often take for granted was so important to them that they would risk their lives for it. There are parts of the world right now, and there certainly have been many throughout history, where this gathering would be illegal, where Christians were persecuted, they would be imprisoned, beaten, even killed simply for gathering in the name of Jesus, but that didn't stop them. They would get up in the middle of the night and travel many miles. They would hide behind locked doors. There are stories of Christians gathering and whispering their songs of worship so as not to be heard because they knew if they were found out, 
they would be violently punished. But it didn't stop them because they believed that this right here, what we are doing, mattered that much. And this is humbling to me because there's a different story that is happening across our country right now where something that cost us so little, not much more than a little bit of gas and a couple of hours on a Sunday morning, despite the lower cost, there's also a lower commitment. We don't need the studies to tell us that this rhythm of worship is becoming deprioritized or devalued in our country. That there are more things that are taking its place in the lives of those who still love and follow Jesus. And it feels like we might be missing something if this mattered so much to other Christians throughout history and across the world. So to help us understand the value of it and the place of it in our faith, I want, I want to look at what happens every time we gather. The real purpose of this is this. Now, our rhythm of worship gives Jesus the place he deserves in our lives. As I was uh, developing this message, there, there are a couple different ways I could come at it. The first is that I could try to convince you of the value of this by showing you uh, what it means for you, like to try and convince you this is really important for you. But instead, I want to come at it from a different angle and show you what it means to Jesus, that you might not be motivated by the benefit you get from it, but you might be motivated by giving Jesus what he deserves as our King, our God, and our Savior. And, and so he deserves our worship no matter what's going on in our lives. There's this moving picture from Scripture in Revelation chapter 1. So Revelation um, is a, it's an account of this like dramatic and kind of trippy vision given to one of Jesus' first disciples. This guy named John was, was one of Jesus' original disciples. By the time he writes this, he's pretty old. And, and he's, he's in prison on an island called Patmos in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And Jesus gives him this vision to share with other Christians like a heavenly perspective of, of what, what is going to happen on earth so that Christians might have the strength they need to persevere through times of trouble. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 share this. John writes to these Christians he loves. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation or the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, I was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. The part I want to focus on there is when he, like all of this began with him, it says, being in the spirit on the Lord's day. He knew what day it was. Somehow in his prison cell, you know how like in movies you see people tallying up like one, two, three, keeping track of the days? Like somehow he had kept track of the days and he knew when Sunday was Sunday. He knew what day was the first day of the week. And you can just imagine him marking it and then circling the first day of the week and saying, this one, this one belongs to Jesus. And his heart's longing was to be with his church. But because he couldn't do that, he would be with them in the spirit. He would have his own church right there. He would worship the Lord despite all that was happening around him. So think about this. John is the last living disciple. By this point, he's about 90 years old. He's been beaten. He's been tortured. They boiled him trying to kill him. He survived. When he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus, they finally sent him to exile on this island prison. He's all by himself. All of his friends have died. And he's there, 
still falling on his face every day of the resurrection to worship Jesus because that's what he deserves. Like that, that image to me is so moving. He knew that Jesus deserved it. And he called that day the Lord's Day. This became a term Christians used to refer to the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. There was a subversiveness to this because in the Roman Empire, they would use that same term, the Lord's Day, to, to refer to a few days on the calendar. A few times a year, Rome would have what they would call the Lord's Day. And it was when they would call all the citizens of Rome to assemble in their local communities to declare their loyalty and allegiance to the emperor because he was their Lord and God. And so when John is writing to the Christians, he's saying every Sunday is a Lord's Day for us. Not, not about the emperor, but about our king. And, and this is a day for us to assemble, to come together, to declare our loyalty and allegiance to our risen king. It's his day, and it belongs to him. And every time we gather, everything we do is about giving Jesus what he deserves. So let me just walk through this with you. When we sing, we give Jesus the praise he deserves. I am not a singer. I'm not a musician. Like, I, I don't make music as a form of recreation. I never sing for the enjoyment of those around me. That's just not how it works for me. I wish it was. But I can tell you this. There is something in me that comes alive when I think of Jesus, who he is and what he has done for me. Like, I, I feel it in the depths of my soul, and I sense that talking about it, even though I talk a lot, is not enough. Writing about it is not sufficient. I need to express a, a praise to Jesus where, where my mind and my heart, my mouth and my soul come together. And that is the purpose of song. It expresses more than spoken word can. It combines all of our being and it comes out in this praise to the God who deserves it, who is worthy of it. The pastor and theologian John Piper said it this way. He said, singing is the Christian's way of saying, God is so great that thinking will not suffice. There must be deep feeling. And talking will not suffice. There must be singing. That singing has value. It's something that the Christians always were called into. And so when we gather and when we sing, we are praising Jesus as he deserves. So every time we gather, we come around the table. We eat bread, we drink juice to remember the death of Jesus. And when we do this, we give him the gratitude that he deserves. We are acknowledging that he not only died, but he died for the forgiveness of our sins. If not for his grace and mercy, get this, if not for his grace and mercy, we would still be accountable for our sins. We would be awaiting a day when we would have to stand before the glorious throne of the Lord and give an account for every sinful thought or word or action and we would be given justice, punishment as we deserve. But Jesus took our place, and therefore we are given not wrath, but mercy. We are not given what we deserve. We are given what Jesus deserves. And that is what we remember every time we eat and drink the bread and the cup together, that Jesus took our place. And so when we do that, we are expressing to him this deep gratitude that he deserves. When we open the word, which is a part of every gathering, when we open the word, what we are doing is saying, Jesus, your word commands my life, and I give you authority. Before I even know what you say, I trust and obey. 
And so when we open his word, we are giving him the authority over our lives that he deserves. When, when we participate in giving, there is an act of surrender there. And it's not just about money. It's that our money and our hearts are so intertwined that when we practice surrender in this part of our life, it often becomes the catalyst for other acts of surrender in our life. We're saying, I will obey. I will surrender to you no matter the cost because that's what you deserve, Jesus. When we exchange love with one another here in the gathering, when we practice hospitality, when we show grace and mercy to one another, this is a way to honor Jesus as well. It's all about him. And here's what I want you to understand. We need this rhythm of worship to live our lives for Jesus. This is not just checking a box or keeping a spiritual tradition alive. This is essential to us if we are to live our lives for Jesus. See, our desire is to honor him, right? I don't think anyone... Uh, would say that I I don't want to honor Jesus. I I would rather walk away from him. Like we all desire to live with him as our king and live our lives for his honor and glory. But the truth is that the rest of our week and the rest of our world push us in a different direction. Don't you feel like you are bombarded with contrary messages? That, That Monday through Saturday, some part of the world is telling you that life is about you It's about your pleasure or satisfaction, that you can be whoever you want to be or do whatever you want to do. It's so easy throughout the week to start to accidentally, unintentionally, even subconsciously believe that other things are more important, whether it's career or finances or leisure and enjoyment, even family or sports or recreation, the the praise or recognition of others. It's easy to reduce life down to these things. Not that any of them are bad, I want to be clear. It's just that they aren't of utmost priority in our lives. They don't deserve that place. And so because we desire to honor Jesus and live for him, but the rest of our lives in this world push against that and compete with it, we need a rhythm of worship that keeps bringing us back to what Jesus deserves. When we we sing praises, to Jesus on on Sunday mornings, the hope is that that might remind us throughout the week that he is the king of glory, that he deserves it all the time, right? When we gather around the table together on Sundays, the hope is that we would live from his grace throughout the rest of the week. When we submit ourselves to his word on Sunday mornings, the hope is that it would come alive in us all of our days. You see what I mean? The, The goal is that it prompts us throughout the week to align our lives with what Jesus deserves. Let me put it this way. One of the things that I love doing with Josh is getting out into the mountains. We love to hike. And there are times where, especially in in areas that are barren, it is hard to find the trail. And it's also dangerous not to know where the trail is, right? You can get lost. You can be gone for hours. You can fall into danger. And so in those places, a lot of times you'll see piles of rocks, clusters of rocks. You know what I'm talking about? And so you can look out into the distance and you'll see one of these pyramids, and you'll know there's the trail, and you'll walk to it. And then from there, you look for the next one, and you start walking toward it. And, and what you're assured is that if you're on the path next to these gatherings, these clusters, you'll be on the path every step in between. And I love this as a, an image of our rhythm of worship. The idea is when we come together, we are aligning our lives with Jesus. 
We are saying he deserves our praise. He deserves, our, he deserves authority in our lives. He deserves our gratitude. He deserves our surrender. This is what he deserves. And if we align our lives every single week with that, it assures us that we're not just on the path in those moments, but that we are following him every step in between. It is essential. We need this rhythm of worship in order to live our lives for Jesus. Because there are so many things that can deter us or distract us. And so understanding that we all enter into this space with different levels of commitment to what we are doing right now, I want to offer three simple ways to increase your commitment to this rhythm. The first is this. Some, some here need to prioritize worshiping uh, Jesus with your church every week. So I just want to ask you this question. How does your consistency in worship compare with the priority you want Jesus to have in your life? How does your consistency in worship compare with the priority you want Jesus to have in your life? So you can't say, I want him to be number one and worship him every once in a while when it's convenient. Okay? So how does your consistency in worship compare with Jesus' priority in your life? If this is a day of worship, what does this day reveal about who or what is on the throne of your life? I want to be clear. I'm not talking about the weeks when you got like four sick kids and you got to be at home, okay? I'm not talking about this, the few weeks a year where you want to do something really special with your family to create memories and invest in your marriage. I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the pattern of your life. Like week after week, what does it reveal about the place Jesus has in your life? See, deciding that this is a priority protects you from your emotions, which can be fickle and fleeting. You know what I mean? Like, let's be honest. There are some days that you wake up on Sunday morning and you're like, yes, today's the day. I'm ready. You, you decide before you even get here, I'm lifting my hands today because I feel like worshiping Jesus, right? You're just here. You're ready to rock. But then there are other Sundays, you can be honest, that you wake up and you're like, oh man, today's Sunday. Do I, want, do I want to go? Are we going to, honey, are we going today? What do you think? I mean, the kids are still in bed, right? Like, and you just go through that, right? You know what that is. And the, the different, the emotions can, can come from different places. Like, sometimes it's because it is an amazing powder day on the mountains, right? Or in Rhode Island in the summer, it's like, man, it is sunny, it is 85, and it is a great beach day, right? There are other things you could be doing. Other times, the emotions that affect your decisions have something to do with what's going on in your life. Like, let's be, let's be honest. There are days where you feel like worshiping God, and there are days when you don't. Like, it is hard to come before him with your grief or your sorrow, your frustration, your anger. Like, it is hard. I confessed uh, to, to our church recently, and there are Sundays where I, like, I just don't want to be around people. To be honest, I don't feel like singing praises to God. And, and that's okay. But I need a priority that prevails over those feelings. Because the days when I don't want to be there are the days that I most need to be there. The days when I most need the love of my church family are the days that I don't want the love of my church family. The days I most need to sing of God's glory are the days I don't want to sing of God's glory. And if I'm leaving it up to my emotions, I won't be there on those days. Are you with me? But if I've already made the commitment, this is a priority and I need it, Jesus deserves it. 
then I will show up even when my heart doesn't want it. And God will do his good work in the depths of my soul to remind me of who he is. So the first challenge is to prioritize weekly worship with your church. The second challenge is to prepare for weekly worship with your church. We know that we prepare for the things that matter most to us, right? Uh, You you don't just go in haphazard to uh, the most important business meeting of the year, right? Uh, I I have a freshman daughter, and um, this is her first round of midterms in high school. I watched her prepare. She cared about this, and so she didn't just just walk into class and be like, well, we'll figure it out. She prepared because it mattered to her. You can think about that in, in terms of uh, deadlines at work or uh, athletic competitions or anything. Like, we prepare for things that matter. And I know, as a father with, with three kids, it is hard to get anywhere on time, right? But I also know that when I'm rushing into something, especially something as important as worship, I, I can't really be prepared for it if I'm flying in 10 minutes late struggling, yelling at my kids, right? Like there's got to be a moment to prepare. And so my encouragement to you is not just to prioritize this, but to find a way to create margins so that you can feel ready to worship Jesus when you come. To take a breath, to lay, lay before the Lord whatever you need to give him and to pray for God to draw you near to him during this time. The final challenge, final way I want to challenge you So you prioritize, you prepare, and then you participate. So I'm going to speak to the guys for just a minute, all right? We can have a tendency to be a little bit passive in this. And ladies, this may apply to you too, but um, in New England, there's really only one time that guys sing, and it's at the seventh inning stretch of Boston Red Sox games when we belt from the depths of our bellies, Sweet Caroline, all right? Like, we'll just sing our heads off there, but nowhere else, all right? Um, There is a power in participating. You coming here is not so that you would be a passive observer, but an active participant in the worship of God. And so whether it is choosing, even when you don't feel like it or you feel a little embarrassed by it, to at least mouth the words of the songs, uh, it's gathering around the table and remembering Jesus together. It's, It's actively listening to the word of God faithfully proclaimed. It's giving and receiving love. It's participating in it that does the work of worship, which is something you talk about a lot here. Worship is work, and you've got to choose to be a part of it. And so my challenge to you is not to just slide in and out, but to come and to actively participate. Because a rhythm of worship has always been a part of God's people, all the way up until this present day. And we need it just as much now as ever before. So if we are going to faithfully follow Jesus, we need this in our lives. So as you move into this new year and as you envision your life toward the end of it, what place does this gathering need to have in your life? Are you willing to prioritize it, whatever may come? So I'm going to be committed to it because Jesus deserves it. Is there a way you can start preparing for it to make more of it in your life? Is there a way you need to stretch yourself to participate in a way that you never have before? See, there's something amazing about our worship When we worship together, it becomes a witness to those who have gathered. So in some ways, it's a witness to other believers that encourages them. And in some ways, it's a witness to those who do not yet believe. If you were here for the first time and you you, you don't yet believe in Jesus, our hope is that our worship would, would be a witness to you. Like through our worship, you would start to wonder who Jesus is. And your curiosity would lead you to a point where you discover 
him and know him as we do. That's part of the purpose of our worship. So again, I just want to challenge you. As we're beginning the year, are there any adjustments, any changes, any commitments you need to make in your own rhythm of worship to align your consistency in worship with Jesus' priority in your life? I want to give you just a moment to reflect on that. I'm going to pray over you. Um, After this song, there will be a prayer team up here. If there's anything related to the message or not that you want to pray for together with someone from your church family, we just invite you to come up after the message and during the song. Father God, I pray for this church, for these brothers and sisters of mine, that your spirit would move to spur them on, to encourage one another, to worship together with each other. I pray that you would make their worship contagious, both within this church and even on into the community. That as they make much of Jesus, not only when they are together, but also when they are apart, that people would be drawn to you. They would know the good news of Jesus. They would find salvation in him. This isn't in his name we pray. Amen.